Welcome back to BTA Charity Voices Podcast with me, Anne Hughes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Hazel Crombie, who is the new Head of Scotland at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Hazel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Anne. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and have a wee chat with you this morning. Yeah, and we've met recently through work that I've been doing with you guys as well. So it's been lovely getting to know you and getting to watch you begin this job. But if we start to look back to where it all began in charity for you, where did it all begin? It's a good question, really. A lot of people say that they they fall into the third sector. I think mine was slightly more of a choice. studied sports science with psychology at university and I kind of decided... That wasn't the career path that I wanted to continue. So I'd got my, my first kind of job um, working for a millionaire property developer Definitely. as a PA. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I did that for a year. And I suppose it was the corporate world. It was just a different life. And, and I got to the end of the year and I thought, mm, I'm not sure this is the right world for me. And kind of along the way, I'd been volunteering because I did a lot of youth work and basketball coaching with young people anyway. So I worked with the Rock Trust in Edinburgh. It's a homeless charity for 16 to 25-year-olds. Um, so I did crisis sessions, drop-ins, and kind of mentoring with them. So that was a really nice feeling of kind of giving back some of the skills mm-hmm. I'd acquired. And then I started being off as a, a volunteer with Marie Curie in the events team. So just out and about doing the events, mm-hmm. meeting people, meeting volunteers, just having a great time. Yeah. Um, and then at, at the end of it, yeah, we job came up as a supporter relations officer. And that's kind of how it started, a, a full-time into the third sector. Uh huh. Perfect. And I think, you know, it's interesting to start as that in that supporter relations role because you really get to understand the supporters better, I think, than people who maybe come in higher in the charity and they don't get to know the supporters at that level. Was that interesting? Because you must have seen really Marie Curie, such a good cause. So you're meeting a lot of people at different stages of their journey, at different mm-hmm. stages of their grief, I would probably imagine. What was that like? Did you enjoy that role and that service that you were providing people to feel as if they were they were doing something for their loved one at such a dark time? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it was definitely that twofold because it was a mm-hmm. hospice organisation. You, you were frontline taking the calls in the supportive services team. So... Yeah, you got to know the the bread and butter of how the charity runs, how we do send out fundraising packs, you know, all the process used to develop the new processes, work with the volunteers. And then you'd be working closely with the nurses and the hospice staff alongside the bereavement side. So really interesting into grief and death and just a real sense of pride, I suppose, that the stories and the feedback you'd get from volunteers when they phoned in, you'd it's a real good feel factor of, oh, what, what I'm doing in my job today is help somebody you know, maybe do an in-memory event for their loved one. Yeah. Uh huh. Because I was speaking to somebody in a, a different walk of life, really, uh, not to do with this podcast, and they were talking about how, you know, we prepare so much for, for birth, for example, and we celebrate mm-hmm. all these landmarks, but we don't prepare for death. It's such a taboo, and we just sort of hope it's not going to happen until it happens, and then we face the, the real loss and devastation of that. Do you think that you are, for want of a better phrase, better with death? Because, you know, do you just get it more about how we could do that period of our lives? Because you spoke to so many people in that position. I think so. I think Mercury is particularly close to my heart because my auntie had passed away there Mm. after she had a brain tumour. So that was another kind of reason. There was a a personal cause why I wanted to work for that particular organisation. I suppose being in the supporters team, 
for so long that exposed you to all that and then I hopped over to um, be the legacy advisor for Scotland so I did that for four years there at Marie Curie so then my job was to talk about death and dying and bereavement. Uh So I'm assuming that that was really difficult because to speak to people about not everybody wants to talk about dying and not everybody wants to talk about their will you know I still even though at 47 you know, with some things in my life, me and my husband don't have wills. And I said, I said that to a friend recently, and they were like, well, why don't you just do one? And I was like, no, I know, but I've just not got round to it. And I obviously do want to leave a gift to charity in my will and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think, well, you need to just get it written, go and do something about it. But it's such a sort of a icky thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's like you and the rest of the, the nation. Oh, exactly. That- talking about death in Scotland is a really taboo subject and people don't they're very personal they don't want to speak about it so I suppose one positive that's come out of COVID and the pandemic is that now people are talking about death and dying in their front living rooms and they are hopefully starting to be like oh perhaps I should put a a will in place to make my provisions for the future because we don't know what's around the corner what's going to come tomorrow. Uh huh. And so what was that? I know you said you did that role. So you went from supporter relations to becoming a legacy advisor. And did that therefore really change? Or did you feel you were still sort of speaking to the same people, but just did about different stuff? No, I suppose I was at 11 years in total at Marie Curie. So I would have been seven years in the supporter team, which right. had kind of like moved from officer to team leader to team manager. Uh-huh. So it really done the whole breadth of that supporter journey from Mm -hmm. that side and then going over to legacies so being a legacy advisor for Scotland the role changed and that I was then like (laughs) legacies on tour around Scotland essentially running events meeting up with people and creating partnerships and free will schemes and things so it was a lot more project based Uh compared to that frontline supporter services but yeah it it really set me up to have the confidence and the skills that I needed to be able to communicate appropriately. It's that sensitivity around talking about leaving a gift in your will to charity. But it was so nice because it meant you could connect people back to their roots. So events that I did and perhaps invited legacy pleasures along. Mm-hmm. We did one at the Scottish Parliament and it was brilliant because we had the chief exec, we had a family, um, the nurses. And so one of the pleasures came along and she actually bumped into the nurse who'd nursed her husband three years oh, prior oh, wow. so there was lots of like hugs and tears and I suppose just that heartwarming bit for me of I made that connection I brought the nurse and the person back together uh-huh. through one of my events and yeah it was just really nice to to think that I'd facilitated that because obviously once a nurse has been in and cared for somebody they don't often keep in touch with the family no and that would need to be the case, wouldn't it, for their own well-being, the nurse's own well-being, you know, and the families, yeah. I think, as mm-hmm. well, to mm-hmm. be able to move past that see, that uh, period. So then you moved over into legacy and in, in development at Chaz just before the pandemic. <coughs> so what was that like? You were now firmly in legacy, yeah? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, moved over there. Chaz didn't really have a legacy programme. They'd done some legacy stuff before but it was time to kind of revamp. So starting from scratch, really, put a free will scheme in place and just tidy up the database and, you know, establish the supporter journey. Who, Who's your audience? Who are you trying to target for new people? Mm-hmm. How are you going to manage and steward your existing legacy supporters? Because it's, it's a really intricate thing. Somebody can put you in your will, but they could take you out tomorrow. But again, you have to respect, respect their wishes if they don't want to be contacted so there are lots of things to consider. So, yeah, we got the, the programme up and running there. So that was really nice. And then I was part of the 
remember a charity camping council right. at that time when I was at Chaz. So that meant I'd go down to London for the committee meetings. And that was just gave me that extra level of depth and knowledge because you got exposed to what was happening um, at HMRC. So there's like inheritance tax issues, there's backlogs, there's all mm-hmm. these things that were going on in the wider sector that I could then bring back and kind of apply that to what we were doing day to day. Yeah, and you know what always intrigues me about legacy fundraising? As you know, Hazel, I've been a fundraiser for a long time. I've sort of dipped my foot in many different areas of fundraising. But what gets me a legacy, which I've never done anything on, is... You can't have a possibly have a target and know how much the return was. And actually, interestingly, <laughs> seen a colleague uh, down south put on LinkedIn today. What is the time period between leaving the gift and the charity receiving the gift? What is the data on that? And I just re- finally read it before I was chatting to you. And some people were saying seven years, but they felt that that was maybe a bit of an older figure. And was it still relevant? And I just thought. That is really bizarre because I've always been target driven in my career. So I've always mm-hmm. had a target and that's what's driven me to get on with my job every single day. Am I getting to my target? Am I getting to my target? You didn't have a target, I'm imagining. How does it work? <laughs> that was the appeal. Oh, that was perhaps, what? perhaps. <laughs> Would you not like to be in a job that you don't have targets uh-huh. to bring in the income? <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly it. So um, yeah, no, you're about right. I think it's about eight years from when somebody writes their last will to then potentially the average time that they would die eight years uh-huh. following that. Right. There's a lot of stigma and a lot of um, old wives' tales, I suppose. Yeah. If you write your will, you'll die the next day. Which is perhaps why I don't have a will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, you laugh, uh-huh. but it's, yeah, there's a lot of people who do think like that. Uh-huh. So how do you quantify, like when you sit down at your yearly appraisal, how do you quantify how your job's gone that year? <laughs> It's a good question. Um, obviously, it depends on each organisation, uh-huh. but it could be based around the conversations you're having with and how you're stewarding your supporters. Yeah. You know how many events you've run, because you've got to remember, legacy income's not come. You're not speaking to the supporter, and then they're going to die, and the money comes in next week yeah. or in six months. Mm-hmm. So, really, you're you're on that stewarding process, and it might be somebody who's already got a direct debit set up where they play your lottery or so it's so I suppose it's just about that visibility it's about raising the profile of legacy giving and educating people that leaving a gift in your will is a a form of fundraising it's not that upfront yeah Uh that you have to do now and you hear of organizations don't you that have been left really substantial sums and when they go in to look on their databases they have no trace of this person they mm-hmm. did not know this person existed, and yet this person has left a substantial amount of yeah. what they've left in the world to the organisation. And you think, there is no way to track this, is how I think. But I'm no, probably th- wrong. But... No, no, you're not. It's absolutely right. There's probably about half of all legacies, uh, probably at Marie Curie and Chats, that we received that we didn't know were coming. They just fall through the door, and you're like, yes, that's uh-huh. awesome. Uh-huh. So it, it's a really hard one to do pipeline income and predict uh-huh. Uh-huh. on previous trends. And I mean, there's definitely months that you get more legacy income than others. Yeah. But again, that can be to, towards the end of the tax year because the solicitors and everybody are trying to clear their desk and get all yeah. their accounts in order. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one it to quantify. It's a tricky one. And so obviously earlier this year, in July 2022, you decided to jump out of Legacy and you became the head of Scotland for the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. So yes. what made you decide to go and take that leap? That's a good question. 
I think I was ready to, to break away from legacies a wee bit. I'd been coming up eight years as a specialist in legacies. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love legacies. I'll probably talk about it for forever. But I was doing extra projects on the side, you know, with the values and behaviours, frameworks, appraisals, leadership courses. I did a, a own studying and I've become a qualified coach. So I suppose for me, it was all personal development and growth in addition to my legacy job. So I kind of, I knew my feet were itchy mm-hmm. and I was scared of being um, pigeonholed a little bit and only having, because there's not many head of legacy department jobs out there. Yeah. Maybe a few within the much bigger charities. I wanted to broaden my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And that's perfect. And how actually is it going? Because, you know, lots of change has gone on and the Chartered Institute of Fundraising the new CEO who's been there for a year is also based in Scotland. So it feels like definitely it's a it's a chartered institute that is equipping itself for the future, for the fact that now, and it, certainly my experience as a freelancer, it doesn't matter where I live anymore. I do work for organisations the length and breadth of the UK. So how is it feeling? How is it going? You're a four or five months on the new job. How's it going? Yeah, it, it's brilliant. I, it's Far exceeded my expectations, to be honest. Really good. Really delighted with the move. It's just a really exciting time. Like you say, we've got a new, fairly new chief exec who lives in Scotland. And that does make, we've got quite a few new members of staff who also live in Scotland. So it is coming away from that London-centric, you know, head office in London. Everything is all about London. And it's really not. So we, Uh we are making big changes. And then we've got a new chair, Jamie McIntosh, yeah. and he's just new as well. So him and I are a little bit of a double act at the moment, going around trying to meet people and just, I suppose, find out what's going on in, in the fundraising world because things are so different because of the pandemic and we're just coming out the other side. So we need to see what's not working and see if we can try and fix it, basically. Yeah. And really offer that support, isn't it, to fundraisers because... You know, as as you know, and we've both experienced this, sometimes you can be quite a lone person within an organisation, can't you? In Scotland, it's a smaller charity. You're the only fundraiser. You are the expert in the organisation. And therefore, we all need somebody to be able to bounce ideas off and things. And that's what all the different the special interest groups, the committees in Scotland offer so many opportunities for people to join the, the CIOF, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I've been a, a bit bowled over by of how much is on offer that support. And mm-hmm. like you say, the, the peer support for loan fundraisers or smaller organisations. Yeah, we've just offered free membership to charities who have less than 50k income. So, mm-hmm. do you know, it's, it's really exciting times. And that expertise exists, doesn't it, within those six, the special interest groups within the committees, so that if I don't have experience of it, like I don't have experience a legacy, but if I was working in an organisation that wanted to know a bit about it, I could revert back to my colleagues that are in one of the committees at the CIOF and get the, exactly the kind of advice that I need in a much easier way than trying to just access a website or read up about it or whatever because it's actually building those relationships with colleagues, isn't it? Absolutely. And it, it gives you that platform to, to network and really build those relationships so you can just message somebody and say, can you help me out? And mm-hmm. I think that's probably the beauty of fundraising in the third sector is that everybody's so open to to sharing that knowledge and best practice. Uh-huh. So because we all are going through a lot of the same challenges. So yeah. it makes sense it to really utilise all of our networks and 
use each other to support each other. Yeah, and you know, I say this, and we actually were at a networking event recently for fundraisers, weren't we? And I was saying at that too, your network is so important. And 24 years in my career, if I didn't prioritise my network throughout my career, I wouldn't have been able to go freelance because most of the work I get comes around from someone I've worked with before Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and so that network even if you don't need it just now at some point in your life it will make sense why you built that network and that I really am always encouraging fundraisers that you need to prioritize your network immensely yeah Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely because yeah I think my network has probably served me well and not even for getting new jobs as such when I've been moving through my career but more from a a mentoring point of view mm-hmm. you know there's people more senior that you meet and you say well can we can we stay in touch or I've got this issue that I'm dealing with and I don't know what to do can you help me yeah. and a lot of the time they're more than happy to help if yeah. you just ask so yeah the more people you can speak to that networking is one of my favorite things to do me too me too and I think like the we had the Glasgow conference in June 2022 and then there was the national convention down in London in July I know there's lots of workshops going on at CIOF just now too but then after Christmas into 2023 those opportunities to actually be in the same place with people again are actually really exciting because you just pick up so much by those incidental conversations you have the workshops you attend they make you think about something you hadn't realised so it's Mm -hmm. really just like I don't think there's anything to lose really is there? No, I, th- I think it's exciting to be back in person because for me, Zoom's great in some respects because you don't need to travel as much and mm-hmm. it works, but it's also a bit stilted. Yeah. Do you know, you you go on with your agenda, you chat about work and then you log off the call. Uh-huh. Whereas when you're in a more relaxed atmosphere, you're chatting over coffee, like you say, these, these different ideas come up or you go off on a tangent, you go, oh, oh should we work together on that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you know, so these little ideas are born, whereas I don't think there's as much opportunity when you're online. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So are you excited for what's next? You're only four months out of the job. There's lots more to come. Are you excited about it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're just, Jamie and I are just coming to the end of having a chat to the whole of the Scottish Exec Committee. Um, we're just trying to get our plan, plan in place for what we're going to do going forward. Uh-huh. Great. So 16 years of a career, Hazel, when you look back on it all, what are you most proud well, of? I've got quite a few different project moments of projects that I've designed and got off the ground and done myself. So like the Free Wills project with Marie Curie, that was something that I'd really nurtured the relationship with the solicitors. And then I'd taken the, the research that Remember Charity had published and then I'd applied that and coached the, the solicitors and you know really improved the, the quality of the gifts that Marie Curie were being pledged so uh-huh. there's, there's a few worky things in there but I think most proud of at the moment is, is making the jump over into this new role of head of Scotland because I was really scared of being pigeonholed as a legacy specialist for the rest of my days in charity and yeah. thinking what my, like I love legacies but I didn't want to just be legacies because I had, felt I had lots of more leadership and other skills to offer and I thought how am I going to get out if everybody just sees me as legacies Aye. Legacy Hazel is what they used to call me. (laughs) And it is interesting to have that note to yourself, you know, especially to listeners too, to have that chat. I'm a pigeonholing myself. Now, I certainly would say I probably pigeonholed myself in unrestricted fundraising, so various unrestricted income. 
which was okay because that's quite wide actually mm-hmm. the things that I do are quite wide but I agree with Legacy it's so niche and fine mm-hmm. if you love it and you want to do it for a 40 year career but you could just have it as one of the feathers in your cap it doesn't need to be the only feather in your cap can't you? Yeah absolutely it probably just depends on your own personal uh-huh. growth mindset and, and what you want to do like say I, I'm all about personal development so once I've learned one thing I'm on to the next yeah oh, great that's good when you look back on it oh what's the best piece of advice you think you've ever been given in your career I think it's probably to not let others tell you that you're not good enough because mm. unfortunately I've come across quite a few managers in the past who yeah who make you feel small or make you feel insignificant for some reason and like you're not capable of doing one your current job or two something more than what you're already doing Mm -hmm. so I think it's trying to dig deep and think actually no I know inside myself I can do this yep you know Mm -hmm. and and keeping that I think that self-belief and that self-direction and you know you talked about how you your growth mindset and you do coaching and things like that and sometimes I think we all need to remind ourselves don't we that we know what's best for us we don't need everybody else to believe it or think it or know it we just need to know and we need to keep on that path don't we Mm-hmm. despite the naysayers because they'll have a hundred reasons for naysaying and there's no need trying to understand them but equally you can move past them you can it's it's hard and you that's why also having a good peer support network or somebody even just like a, a buddy that you can speak to and, and be a wee sounding board and say well this person's telling me this do you think it's right mm-hmm. is it the right level mm-hmm. somebody you can have that proper honest conversation with yeah really helps you not let your mind kind of run away with, oh my God, I feel terrible because this person's told me I'm rubbish. Definitely. Oh, definitely. I definitely agree with that. And when you look at the advice that you would give, and I mean, goodness knows, now in your new role as head of Scotland, you probably get asked for advice a lot more than you've been used to. (laughs) But when uh, you do give advice, is there something that you give time and again? For me, I suppose, yeah, it goes back to from my personal journey. It would be about finding, so there's a chap called Simon Sinek yep if that's yep um he talks about finding your why and it is that what is your why so when you're turning up to work every day why are you doing it what's making you feel good about it mm-hmm. what's not so, yeah so the personal connection for me is how does it how does what you're doing connect with who you are and what your values are and I think that's what's driven me to to keep going through charity sector and keep finding until I find something that I'm going to settle with because if yeah like the organizational values the culture you're at work a lot of time for your life and if you're not happy like you might love the cause but if you're not happy then you've got to challenge yourself and say well why am I not happy what is it that's bugging me about this Uh is it the people is it the culture is it the type of work you know working on my own so I suppose just it comes back to being a coach asking those searching questions of well well how does that make you feel and then if you recognize oh okay I don't I don't like the way this makes me feel. And then it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? Exactly. And that takes us right back to where your career started when you were telling us about working for the millionaire property developer. And that just didn't correlate with who you were as a person. So you thought, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, pushed me in a different direction. Uh And I do think that we're sort of a spoiled having a career in the third sector because we always know why we do what we do. You know, sometimes maybe we have to remember, remind ourselves but ultimately, it's not for a shareholder to make more money. It's for mm-hmm. more important, vital work to be carried out for the people who need it most. And 
it's only in recent years that I've reflected on how lucky am I that my career has actually always been about how can other people get the help, access the support they need. It's mm-hmm. interesting, isn't it, that we've got that. Yeah. Simon Sinek is amazing. I mean, all his stuff is just fantastic. So I advise anybody, especially leaders, to be listening to a lot of the Simon Sinek stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you look back on all the teams that you've ever worked on, what makes a team so good, in your opinion? It's a good question. That's It goes all the way back to my sport days as well, playing mm-hmm. basketball and being the captain and all that kind of stuff. I think you need to have trust within a team. Yeah. And in organisations, it's kind of that values-led behaviour. And that sounds a bit jargony, but basically it just means that you're going to have a set of values that people are going to stick to and be accountable for. So I think for me, when people do what they say they're going to do, you don't need a perfect team and people don't need to be perfect, but they need to acknowledge if they're wrong or if they've not been appropriate in some way or I suppose having that, we call it psychological safety, that, that space, people can feel comfortable to feedback and say, I didn't like the way you said that to me. It came across really bad. And for somebody not to go off, off on one because they didn't like what you were saying. So how do you build that psychological safety that the people in your team can openly say what they feel? And I think once you have that and you have that kind of grown up conversation, mm-hmm. the green light to be able to say what you think, it's like night and day. It's like, yes. wow. And I think that's what I feel like in my new job is that it's like a grown up organisation. So it's so exciting because you can, I can, Katie, our chief exec, is so approachable. It's wonderful because I, she's just like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. And I, I say that like because I'm a bit shocked because I've come across plenty of chief execs who are who are not, and it's sometimes it's really hard to even get a conversation with them in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that I can phone her up is wonderful. Uh huh. And I think the Simon Sinek, I quote him quite often because he would say, "A team of people is not people who work together; it's people who trust each other." Oh. And isn't that just fascinating as you move into this new role? Uh, and obviously, you know, you've got your colleagues who work in CIOF, but you're also part of all these other groups because you're part of you, your colleague is a volunteer who is the chair of Scotland. And mm-hmm. then there's all the committees and all the groups. And so team is going to, and how you react within those various teams is going to be really key, isn't it, to how you build the success of CIOF in Scotland? <laughs> no pressure. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no absolutely and I think that's the the main part of my role I suppose is building those relationships uh-huh. and those bonds and hopefully the trust because I am this one person who's coming to say hi tell me your problems I'll uh-huh. see what I can do uh-huh. and yeah pe- people have to respond and they have to take time to get to know me and trust that I'm hopefully got their best interest to to move things forward for them or for the group. But I've also got a lot of empathy because I know there's been struggles over the last few years for everybody. So I'm coming with an open mind and there's, again, back to the coaching, there's a non-judgment from me because you can't judge people because you don't know their situation or their circumstance. So I'm, I'm just really... The advice I would give to everybody is just put your cards on the table because I can't help you if I don't know what's going on. Oh, I wish you so much luck in the new role and for the future of CIOF in Scotland and, of course, in the UK. Thank you. Thanks for joining Thanks, me, Hazel. Thank you, Anne.